things we do well at Spotify. <laughs> so, uh, last summer, I, uh, I went to, I, I do some work at the women's prison in Purdy, and, uh, and as, as a result of that, I was invited to a, 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 a small prison co education conference in Bard College back east. And when I was there, uh, they put us in, in a nice place and, and, uh, and they encouraged us to go have a beer, speaking about the same thing, uh, you know, before the thing actually began the next day. And when I was there, I, I we sort of gravitated toward people, and, uh, and I gravitated toward somebody who looked to me, uh, I, mean, I, mean, I shouldn't say all this, but he, he, he looked to me, um, at first glance, more tame than I found out he was. And, and I was interested because we, he turned out he was a, a university uh, PhD candidate. He was, he's working right now currently, John McCready, I'm talking about our next speaker. He's, he's uh, working on Hannah Arendt. Uh, he had also been at Bard doing research there in their archives. Um, and we had many things in common and, and, uh, in terms of intellectually. And <clears throat> at some point, uh, we got to talking about fashion and he confessed that he was in the philosophy department, he was putting together a course on fashion. And that, in my mind, could go either way. Except that um, he also told me that one of the influences for him was George Simmel in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, this is going to seem thematic. Uh, Marxist philosopher. <laughs> so I, I, I knew I had uh, confidence in, in his uh, capacity for critique uh, and theory. So I followed up on this after talking to him you know, more and stayed in touch, invited him to the symposium last year to speak. Uh, he wasn't able to do it, but happily we, we are a persistent lot. And uh, I, I stayed in contact with uh, John McCready and he agreed to come uh, this summer. So I'm really happy that he's here. Um, just the, the, the short version of the introduction. He teaches philosophy at the University of Dallas, where it's very hot and very humid. So he's happy to be here right now. Uh, and just a, just a few uh, notes about him. In 2013, John published uh, uh, um, an essay, a chapter, A Difficult Redemption. And it's in, it's in a, actually a companion to Woody Allen. Uh, uh, a book that's out that includes an, an ethical examination of Allen's so that's very media timing, and um, which also just gives you some sort of sense of, of, of that philosophers are not all uh, boring and dead and everything else involved in other subjects. In 2004, uh, just uh, forthcoming, right? Is it out already? Yeah, uh, he's got emancipating the carceral subject in uh, a text. A collection, The Philosophy in Prison, The Love of Wisdom in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And in that, in that uh, chapter, he develops a model of prison education that will um, navigate between uh, reformist and abolitionist uh, positions. And I already mentioned that he's, that he's uh, currently worked, I'm sure we're looking forward to publication of that text on Hannah Arendt. So please welcome, from, uh, currently from Texas, John McCready. mentioned Marx because I don't have anything about Marx in my talk. I mentioned Marx, uh, although I do have George Simmel. 
in here. Um, one of the mentors in philosophy that I had once told me that there is nothing off limits to the philosophical gaze. That is, everything is open to philosophical investigation. Everything, uh, and even Agamben says this, that everything is open to philosophical development. And that really comes from Victor. Um, and so I'd like to turn our collective philosophical gaze uh, towards a, a subject that doesn't seem very philosophical at all, fashion. Right? Fashion is ephemeral, flights of fancy, uh, a capitalist commodity, right? Uh, Charles Baudelaire uh, is the one who fashioned this term, uh, if you will, la mode, right? The product of modernity, right? Surplus income. But I think it's more significant than that, uh, and I'd like to uh, share with you why I think uh, while I started uh, in graduate school, I went to work for a nonprofit called Fashion Group International of Dallas, which is out of New York, and it supports uh, designers, uh, people working in the textile industry, retailers, and the like. We do various events throughout the year, and uh, Virginia Postrel uh, was invited to speak at one of our events in Dallas, and she wanted to talk about her new book that came out, uh, The Substance of Style. Uh, and I found this book really interesting. Uh, I, even though I was working for Fashion Group, I really thought, you know, fashion is sort of superficial. Right? There's really the depth here. Uh, just as a funny aside, we had an event at a fashion museum in Dallas, and some homeless people came in and got in the Grey Goose vodka line and were getting hors d'oeuvres. And someone came to me and said, John, I think you should escort these people out. And I thought, I'm not escorting people who don't have clothes out of the museum for clothes. It's like, sorry, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, so I wasn't really on board with some of the superficial uh, tendencies of the industry. Uh, but this book really impressed me. Um, one of the things Virginia says is that we are naturally, as human beings, oriented towards aesthetic value. That is, we're always interpreting sensible objects. We have this subjective experience of the value of things that present themselves to us sensorially. That interested me very much. Now, this became more philosophical. Now I could uh, at least tap into this uh, fashion uh, vein for a little bit. And she says that, and this was really striking, this pointed me back in the direction of anthropology, philosophical anthropology, which I'm, I'm very interested in, that if we devalue the notion of surface, that is, if we live in this bifurcated world where there is surface and depth, and think that depth has more, or uh, what we used to call in, in metaphysics, being and appearance, right? If being is elevated over appearance, and appearances really don't matter, then we're getting uh, a very flawed view of what it means to be a human being. And so I, I followed her uh, through this book, uh, really interested in what she had to say about uh, being human. One of the interesting stories that she tells is about uh, the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan, when the Taliban left. At a time when you think they would be trying to get water and electricity, they rushed to barbershops to get their beards trimmed. They asked merchants for colorful burkas. They trade trading cards and DVDs of celebrities. Suddenly, color is what they want, not just water and electricity. I couldn't believe this. But it says something about it. It says something about human beings I think that's important, that if we lose sight of, we'll forget what's really unique about human beings. One of the things
thing she doesn't mention in here uh, is, and I guess that didn't, I'll tell you what it says. Uh, some beauticians were hired to go to Kabul, Afghanistan, and work on some of the women uh, that were really in a refugee status. And all they were going to do was just help improve the hygiene by cutting some hair and, and these kinds of things. And as soon as they started to cut their hair, they said, well, could you do it just a little bit like this? You know, could, you, uh, could you move it over to the side? Could you highlight it? Could you put some color on it? How about some makeup? And then don a burqa and walk back out into the street with all of this style underneath. Why? Why would a human being go to these lengths and then put a burqa? What is it about human beings? This is what it prompts me to think about. What is it about human beings that makes us gravitate towards color and texture and style? This is why I think uh, fashion is more interesting. Now, there are several uh, ways to approach fashion. One, one question we could ask is, is fashion substantial or superficial? You know, uh, is Nick Wooster, uh, who was former creative director of JCPenney, uh, and a, what's called a tattooed dandy. Uh, I like him very much, actually, because he's sleeved out. You can't see it here. And he wears checkered bands with a blue sports jacket, which I like. Or Zizek, who is in his iconic V-neck t-shirt with sweat stains. I don't know if you can probably see it from here. Uh, but that's a kind of uniform for him, right? He shows up at events to give talks in V-neck t-shirts to describe him beard. Somebody might mistake him for a homeless person. But his fashion substantial or superficial. That could be one approach to examining this. The question would really become, do you agree with Charles Baudelaire, who in The Painter in Modern Life, describes fashion as a medium for fugitive beauty. The artist runs out into the streets of Paris, right, gorging on all of the colors, the prostitutes, the merchants, the architecture. And he goes back and pours his heart out onto the page of the sculpture and the painting. He says the artist is in pursuit of this fugitive beauty in the folds of garments. And at the beginning of this essay, Baudelaire is looking at fashion plates, right, that have been sent to him. Or do you agree with Kant, who in his anthropology, Immanuel Kant says, fashion is vanity. It's just people trying to outdo themselves, to be better than other people. That's all fashion, vanity. This from the man whose greatest third critique is an examination of aesthetic judgment. But he misses the fact that maybe somebody is making an aesthetic judgment when they choose to dress in a particular way. But he misses it. We could also ask, and perhaps some of you are already asking this question, what about the ethical costs? of things like fast fashion. What does it cost for me to wear a slim fit dress shirt from H&M that costs me $15, which I get 25% off almost every day of the week? What are the costs of that? A burned down factory in Bangladesh? Child labor? How much does it cost for me to wear a garment like that? To look good on Friday night. Slim fit pants, slim fit shirt. <coughs> But I think there's a more philosophically interesting question. I want to know why there's fashion at all. How do we even get to the place where we can ask these other questions? Why is there fashion at all? And I think the answer lies in an examination of what it means to be human. 
And that's something actually that was raised, uh, I think, in the first talk, really was sort of lingering in the background. What is it to be human? Is there something unique about us? Even in the talk about plant biology, right? is there something unique about us? What is it? Anybody getting dizzy from all these? <laughs> so the first point I want to make is that action is linked to human embodiment. Now, my training in philosophy is in phenomenology. So I'm always starting with my experience, right? How I begin with my body, with sensations. Uh, I think oftentimes philosophy gets so abstract, it gets so far removed from embodiment from our everyday work in the world. But fashion is linked to human embodiment because human embodiment entails sensation. And as Aristotle says in On the Soul, desire always follows on sensation. To have sensation is to have desires to move towards or away from something. And it's just examining what animals do, right? Animals sense things and they either move towards it or away from it. You want it or you don't want it. Sensation and desire are the ways that we begin to become acquainted with the world, the way we interpret the world, the way we experience the world. Now take a look at this dress. This is from Dolce Gabbana's Spring 2013 collection. Immediately you're taken by the color, right? Gold, reds, it looks like Byzantium illuminated text, right? Stained glass windows. It's mesmerizing. The slim torso, and then the bell-shaped, lightweight skirt, right? Frames the legs. It's beautiful, right? Mesmerizing. Maybe somebody doesn't like it. Hands, if you don't like it. <laughs> so shape and color and weight and texture are constitutive elements of surface. And so if you want to do a phenomenological description of a surface, right, with the sensate, with the, uh, 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 with your sense organ of touch, right, I can put my hands on here and I can do a kind of granular index of what I feel, right, hard, smooth, cold, right, I get a lot of information through this. So think about holistically, all of my senses working together. I mean, this is the way I engage the world, and in fact, when I put my hands here, I find the limit of myself. I find the world over against myself, and in a way, I can locate myself. What if I didn't have a body? What if I was just a mind? Who would I be? Right? How would I know the world? So, shape, color, texture, and weight are all constitutive elements of the surface. It can be sensorially experienced and responded to. That is, desire follows upon these sensory experiences. But the second point is something unique about us. We're not just embodied minds. We're not just people with sensation, having desires about the world. Animals have that, right? Dogs have that. We are what Ernst Cassera called symbolic animals. He wrote a very lengthy uh, three-volume series, if you're interested, The Philosophy of Symbolic Forms. But when he came to the United States and Yale University Press said, hey, that'd be great if you published that. He 
said, no, nah, I don't think Americans are really ready for three volumes of philosophy like that. I'll write a 150-page book called the Essay on Man, which is sort of a summary. <laughs> Americans will read that. They're not going to read 900 pages. Although, I guess Thomas said his book is uh, for the contrary. So, Kassira, a really interesting figure. Uh, he had a famous debate with Martin Heidegger in Davos. Uh, and uh, instead of impressing the young people, uh, uh, really just alienated himself from them. And the Neo-Kantianism kind of died at that point. And Heidegger became the reigning uh, uh, king of philosophy in Europe. But he makes an interesting point. Human beings are not just rational, not just language-having animals, as Aristotle would have us uh, uh, think, but we're symbolic animals. And what do we mean by uh, symbol? Symbols are material presentations of immaterial realities. Material presentations of immaterial realities. They're also the sole and distinctive way that we experience the world, have knowledge of the world. In fact, we are always creating, inhabiting, and communicating through symbols. Let me give you some examples. Story. Narrative. There have been several narrative presentations today on particular topics. Right? There even the introduction of competing narratives and views. Different symbolic universes that you can occupy to understand and experience certain phenomena that we all are experiencing in the world. Economics, machine intelligence, plants. Right? We all have to represent or present this phenomenon in a way that's understandable. Art, language, religion, science. Kassira thought all of these were symbolic forms, a kind of universe that we construct to understand things. We talk about this in terms of narratives or discourse. He talks about it in terms of symbols. Symbols. What about fashion? Could fashion be understood as a kind of symbolic form? What if we started to think about that? Would that, given what we know about human beings, the sensation and desire that we're symbolic creatures, could we begin to think about fashion in symbolic terms? Think of these forms as a kind of net. And here you'll hear these vestiges of kind. This kind of net that we cast over the world and on phenomenon just to make sense of it. A kind of grid, an interface, if you will. A symbolic interface. That's what myth and religion and language and science and art all were to Ernst Cassirer. I want to suggest to you that fashion can also be understood as a kind of form. But what's communicated? Right? What's experienced uh, through something like fashion? Let me give you a picture of what I call the architecture of the symbol. And this is really derived from um, uh, Kassira's work. But it's really uh, a model for what symbols do, which is represent thought and life. Symbols are a kind of answer to the mind-body problem, right? How do we get uh, thoughts and bodies together, right? Symbolic. Immaterial things rep uh, are represented materially. Forms, you should think about forms as Plato did, idos, 
ideas, representing them in function, function understood as a representation or, or relationships between terms. So you can think about math that way, the way we represent numeric values and then place those in relationship to one another to understand formulas and the like. And then meaning and value represented as sensible sign. Think in terms of gesture. Put my hand out like this to shake your hand, welcoming, but put my hand up like this differently, right? That those kinds of meanings are conveyed materially to the way I position my body. You can also think about clothing that way, I want to suggest to you. In fact, fashion is a kind of bodily adornment that's situated between our own subjectivity and the world. And there's a kind of scale that Georg Zimmel points out uh, between jewelry and tattoos and clothing, all, in some sense, closer in proximity to the body, closer to subjectivity. Tattooing yourself is very different than putting on a piece of jewelry, just a little further away from the body. Clothing is sort of a midpoint between those two. But what I want to suggest to you is that we are expressing in our clothes, symbolically, the way we distinguish ourselves from the herd, and also the way we identify with the herd. And this is where uh, the Marxist philosopher, I don't know if he would like to be called that, uh, uh, but really a sociologist, um, comes in. Zimmel wrote three essays, one on philosophy of fashion, one on style, and one on adornment in which he discusses fashion as a kind of sociological phenomenon. You can find them in this collection, Zimmel and Culture, if you want to read them. But he said, basically, fashion is the result of a dialectic of two inseparable and opposing drives, one to imitate and one to distinguish ourselves. This dialectic would look something like this, kind of Chanel. So the first part of this dialectic is differentiation. This is being for ourselves, being for ourselves, egoistic uh, styling of ourselves for the recognition and esteem of others. It's all about me. That's why I dress this way. Why I tattoo my body. That's one of the drives. It could be like Patrick McDonald here, the uh, uh, kind of extreme dandy, or Iris Apple, uh, these kind of signature um, um, elements of style that they use to distinguish themselves from everyone else. Talk about this uh, differentiation in terms of personal fashion. Personal fashion. Or even, because I know some of you are saying, uh, what if I just don't care about that? Uh, that also is a kind of personal fashion, isn't it? Uh, I write copy for Abercrombie and Fitch, but I dress like a homeless person. That's my personal fashion. <laughs> or imitation. This is the other twin drive, this inseparable drive from differentiation. This drive to imitate, to belong. Um, this is a being for others. It's altruistic. Uh, but it's a desire to um, identify with others, 
uh, and also to please others. I go into certain environments, I dress one way. I go into other environments, I dress differently. Maybe you don't have that, but when I, I don't wear flip-flops and shorts to teach at the University of Dallas, I wear uh, a suit. Uh, I did last semester wear the same suit every day for all of my classes. And then at the end of the semester, I asked my students, just out of curiosity, does anyone notice that I've worn the same suit every day? And they said, yes. <laughs> you know, like, what is going on? It was a great suit every day. And I was amazed because who am I? I'm just this guy that comes in and talks to you about Arizona. And each end, you know, then I leave. I'm only in there for an hour, you know, but focusing on my clothing, right? What about Nietzsche? Wouldn't this be? Are you in the <laughs> So people notice this, right? It does matter. It changes the environment. When I dress up and say, I'm dignifying this hour for reading these texts. Do you know what uh, Machiavelli did when he was in exile? He writes a letter to the Tory, and he says, every day when I get off work, I go in and I strip off my work clothes and I put on my best robes to go into my study and read Plutarch and Dante. He dignifies approaching these texts by the way he dressed. Why can't that be? Right? Strange. <laughs> but you know this, right? Social fashion. In Texas, there is this ubiquitous white male who wears golf slacks and a company logo golf polo. He's everywhere. I, I, I can't miss him. If I turn around in a grocery store, I see him there. He's just like this. It's kind of mass fashion. Uh, but don't be mistaken, if you shop at H&M, you look just like everybody else. Okay? So if you shop at J. Crew, you look just like everybody else. There's also group fashion. I had to put the punks in here because that's my generation, right? And uh, I used to try to convince my mom that uh, my green mohawk and my leather jacket were distinguishing me from everyone else. She looked like great friends. <laughs> didn't understand this dialectic of fashion that I'm trying to imitate as well as distinguishing myself. Right? A uh, mountain man. Uh, I see this guy everywhere too. He's right next to the ridiculous white man. <laughs> but even Heidegger, Heidegger had an artist make him a suit that he called, according to Gavin, who's a friend, a childhood friend, but also a critic, he called it his existential suit. Heidegger wanted to identify, so identify with the black forest peasants that he had a suit made so that he could look like them. But also distinguish himself, right? No, but who's dressing like that? <laughs> High pants, frock coat. Gadamer said he looked like a farmer dressed for Sunday. He's trying to embody, trying to identify uh, with this group. Here's a preliminary definition. Fashion is a social form produced by these two opposing drives, this drive to imitate, drive to distinguish, that tailors you know the word sartorial, means to tailor, to sartus. Many of you may know Thomas Carlyle's sartus, Sartor Resartus, the book, in which he says that language is clothing of the mind, clothing of thought. 
he's talking about symbols. So this social form is a way for us to poeticize or fashion, you could say fashion fashions, the self for the pleasure of others and to elicit their recognition and esteem. So that's a preliminary kind of definition so far. And here's what we know so far, but what I'm finding so far. Why is there fashion? Because we're embodied, because we're symbolic, and because we're social animals who are driven towards imitation and distinction. That's what I think it says about us. But now, let me raise an objection that you're probably thinking, isn't this just so much phrenology? Feeling bumps on the head so you can judge the character of the person? Isn't this just judging a book by its cover, right? You're judging me because I'm wearing a golf shirt with my company logo and slacks and calling me a ubiquitous white man. Isn't that just a prejudice? The problem with uh, uh, that objection is that phrenology is really based on these anatomical features. You're drawing conclusions about someone based on anatomical features. These are facts that they can't change. Fashion's not like that. Fashion is willfully chosen. Now, I had students in my class tell me, when I taught this course on fashion, I, I just pick whatever is clean off the floor. I don't care what I wear. I put on whatever I, whatever's next to me. I don't care. And I said, well, okay. Well, then I'll choose your clothes for the rest of the semester. How's that? And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be anything but function. You just have to be able to move to class and cover the body. So it can be anything, right? I, I could just get a snuggie and put you in a snuggie and wear that every day. Suddenly, in their mind, no, 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 I, I, I don't want that. I don't want someone to choose my clothes. But there's a kind of resistance. That, and the resistance comes from the fact that we're invested in our clothes. We are willfully investing ourselves in a sartorial system of signs every day. A kind of symbolic feel that we're importing ourselves. And by, when I say that, please don't hear me saying that there's some essential self that we're like drawing out every day and fixing up like a Barbie doll and presenting to the world. I have a much more uh, refined sense of self. Like, David Hume, I think we're sort of uh, trying to figure out what the heck that is in Kant. It, what is the self? I don't know. It's just this kind of open space that's oriented towards the world. We don't know what it is. But we're building a self. We're constructing ourselves every day. This is a piece from uh, Alexander McQueen's Fall 2013. I, I like it because it really does show a kind of investment. <laughs> <laughs> There's a real investment if you wear this. To work. <laughs> <laughs> so fashion then involves an investment of the will. If you read Hegel, he will talk to you about property this way, right? Why do I have a right to it? Because my will is invested in this piece of property. Right? The same way with our clothes, but it's more uh, developed than that. Actually, the Latin here is interesting in investment. The root word means to clothe, to dress. Right? Investment. We talked a lot about economics and investment. Uh, but what's being clothed? The self is being clothed. 
availability of fashion. So in other words, if you compare uh, some hunter-gatherer group in the middle of nowhere, the materials they have versus people today with the internet, basically, you know, uh, can basically get anything. And what happens to this, the sense of self in, in that? How does it change? So a hunter-gatherer tribe, uh, are you thinking that perhaps this, uh, maybe I should repeat the question. So what, you're asking, what is the um, difference? Uh, well, in the sense of self, how does, how does it change? What happens to the sense of self yeah. when availability of fashion is uh, decreased or increased? Yeah. Right. I think uh, that even if you were in a hunter-gatherer tribe that didn't have any clothes, that you were naked, uh, that you are still styling the body in some way. Oh, sure. Cosmetics, jewelry, posture. Right? There's all kind of, if you strip everyone down naked, they're still going to posture in some way, right? To distinguish themselves from the herd to belong to the herd in some way. Sorry to use the herd metaphor. <laughs> uh, does that help? I don't, I don't think it I don't I don't think it changes our ability to construct ourselves whether or not there is fast fashion or no fashion. I think we're as humans, we're always involved in constructing ourselves, and we do it through these mediums, uh, and tribes especially. I mean, there are ways of identifying and distinguishing yourself in tribal cultures. So, right? Oh, I mean, I, I would agree with that, but it just seems like, you know, uh, so it's just that we have more choices as opposed to mm -hmm. there's nothing substantial changing. Oh, I, I see your point. Now, if you have more choices, then there are more opportunities to construct different kinds of cells? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's probably true. 
Yeah, so the construction doesn't change, but the ability to try out different uh, cells. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, good, sorry. So I've always been really fascinated with uniforms, and specifically um, ones that are not pragmatic at all, like the, uh, you know, bottle caps, the chest, you got the epaulets, the big hat, the feather, and all that. And uh, it just seems like a strange contradiction to me because logically, if you are indeed in power, you have authority, and you're comfortable with the fact that you are in power, you shouldn't need to validate that with a big pointy hat. And yet, it's specifically the people in power who have the tallest, biggest, puffiest hat. So, can you help explain this for me? <laughs> so, just so I make sure I understand the question, I'm going to you to explain why there, there's a link between power and big puffy hats. <laughs> the closest I have is tropical bird plumage. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to what I've said here, is that we are the kinds of beings who are constantly uh, fashioning ourselves for others. And sometimes that means in these uh, uh, kind of grotesque ways, of big puffy hats, right? Uh, I don't know, is that a phallic uh, symbol? I have power, I have a big puffy hat. I'm not really sure how to take that, although it, we, we do have religious Yeah, I, I mean, it, it just goes back to this idea that we are, uh, we are very concerned with the surface. And in fact, uh, Hannah Arendt has this great line at the beginning of her essay, Thinking in the Life of the Mind, in which she says that uh, uh, this uh, dichotomy between being and appearance is all wrong. This, this dual metaphysics that we have of being and appearance is all wrong. That actually, we come to know being through appearances, right? And, and when I went back and, and really started thinking about this, I found that even in Plato, even in the Republic, well, uh, uh, another essay, uh, or another um, um, work by Plato. Anyway, uh, um, it was this idea that you come to know unequal and equal when you see two sticks, right? And he wants to point out, Socrates wants to point out, well, we already have access to these ideas of equal and unequal, and that's how we come to know these sticks are unequal, right? But he doesn't even come to know the idea until he encounters the sensible object, right? And that really struck me. I was like, well, maybe Plato was onto this already. Maybe he's not this uh, pie-in-the-sky idealist for real. Maybe this theory of forms is, is a kind of detour, right? Maybe he's really into aesthetic value, that he recognizes that the cave, the shadows on the wall in the cave, are already reflecting the forms all the way down the cave, all the way down the divided line. The shadows matter. That's the starting point for philosophical investigation, right? Not outside the cave, but deep down in the cave. Did, did I uh, totally avoid that? Or? <laughs> <laughs> so, written up his question, like, so would a uniform that's not designed to be showy, would that be like about erasing the self or like merging the self into something bigger than yourself or like, how, what is that, is that the opposite of this? Yeah, so if I, if I wear something, I'm thinking of the breakfast club now, 
right? The, the young woman who's all dressed in black, who hides behind her hair, right? Sort of don't don't see me. How is she? Yeah, yeah. Like for my generation here. Uh, yeah, there, that is an attempt to not belong, but at the same time, it's isn't it an attempt to distinguish yourself from the herd in a way? Don't see me, but I'm still a, a sensible object in front of you. I'm this. I, I stand out like a sore thumb because I'm the only one hiding behind my hair, dressed in black. Right? I mean, everybody sees her. Right? There is no. There is no getting away from the gaze of others. Yes. Yes. I'd like to so almost take the opposite perspective to the first question. Okay. It seems to me we're almost in a historical minimum for fashion. You know, at some level, you know, clothes are so easy and simple, and we invest so much less time in personal adornment, at least in the Pacific Northwest. We have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Texas, we have big hair and make it. You showed some beautiful examples of fashion that maybe 0.001% of people wear. Mm -hmm. And the majority of us are you know, going, I think, to more and more simple forms of clothing. What do you think that says about us as people? Yeah, I, you know, I'm really fascinated with this kind of move towards minimalism. Uh, actually, my wife and I read this book by the minimalists. I don't know if you know these guys that have been touring around, but we went and met them. They're really warmest individuals. They're just so available because they've just kind of jettisoned every kind of consumer commodity. And, uh, and they hug everyone there. I was like, wow, you're on this book tour. How many people are you going to hug for this? <laughs> so, to your point, uh, I think that's also a way in which we're communicating with others, right? Uh, we're distinguishing our, ourselves when we choose to dress minimally, when we choose to have less, and say, I'm going to wear the same grand suit every day <laughs> for the whole semester. Uh, what does that say? It means, uh, uh, I think it means that I don't need <coughs> to be with you. But I can still, uh, I think, uh, construct uh, an environment that's, that's dignified, in a way, for me, but also for you, uh, without having to say this, and I don't care anything about that. I mean, even if I only chose five shirts, I'd still be choosing those particular five shirts that I'm going to have. So I think we're still communicating that way, still occupying that sartorial space. Do you, do you agree with that, or? Yeah, I, you know, I tend to think about it more in terms, at least, say, moving from New York to Seattle. Yeah. Um, I think there's an, an authenticity about the way people present themselves in Seattle. That's very, that there's not this construction of clothing that people are creating. It's much more natural. So people in Seattle are substantive and people in New York. <laughs> 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 there's a different level of self-construction yeah. that gets associated with things rather than with direct communication between people. Okay. I just want two more questions. Two more questions. Okay, let's so, um, the millennials were born into an information age. We have access to so much information through internet and rapid media, 24-hour news, news cycles. Um, and with that, um, the way that fashion speaks through rapid turnover of information, what would you say the net effect on fashion has been for millennials with new collections coming out every season, access to cheap labor um, and design think tanks, just the rapid production of lots of fashion? What's, yeah. What is happening? Like, what would you say the net effect is? 
So you, you, you're asking what the impact is on fashion, but do you actually mean what is the impact on millennials? Yes, on the generation. Okay. Like, I mean, okay. it, it seems like there was less movement of information uh, relating to fashion 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Things moved slower. Yeah, I mean, one, one way to address that question is to point out the historical development of fashion, right? Uh, Baudelaire is great on this in the essay that the Modern Life if you get to He talks about dandies and bohemians. And dandies say to the aristocrats, I see what you're doing. Uh, we don't have to be uh, pedigreed to do that. We can do it, what you're doing, and we can do it better. Right? We can pay attention to every detail, but we don't have to be from the pedigree family. The bohemians say, Aren't the peasants wonderful? Let's fetishize them. Let's become like them. And that's how we got into politics. Uh, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> celebration of peasants. $600 to do it. So I think the impact, the impact on millennials is, um, in a way, that they are maybe, to your point, uh, they're uh, confronted with this possibility of being many selves, right? almost uh, a, a difficulty in how to construct oneself, right? Um, and I think, it, but there's still always the opportunity to uh, discover oneself through trying all these things, uh, you know? Does that, I don't know if I fumbled that or maybe I punted <laughs> there, I'm not sure. Can you imagine a, a system of fashion that allows for the differential play of creativity, but that is not driven by the pa fashion industry, that is post-fashion, yeah. uh, as, as we have it? In other words, I can remember back before the last 20 or 30 years, where the activity of shopping, you know, and, and for, at H&M and stuff, I'm thinking my daughters and so forth, didn't function in the world in the same way, even in that in that economic uh, set. One didn't spend as much time thinking about or doing it, yet when one was going to a party, one picked a dress or, or so forth, or uh, a suit to go to. But th there wasn't this, the, the, the kind of, uh, and you can say at the moment, it seems to be driven more by the desire that, okay, we've sold everybody washing machines and so forth, we need something to keep selling again and again and again, and fashion seems to work to do that. Is there a way of decoupling this human desire to artify oneself from this desire of capitalism to keep selling more and more of the same thing. Yeah, so is there, is there a way to um, separate uh, what the industry drives us to purchase and want, right, in a way, and uh, what we ourselves choose in a way for our own personal fashion? Right? Did I get that right? Well, that's, yes. That... Okay. okay, so I'll give you an example. There is actually. Uh, a movement that really is called like guerrilla fashion. Uh, these people go to secondhand stores, uh, and they're very in touch with style and principles of art, uh, right? But they're not paying uh, five hundred dollars for a piece. They're they're choosing ensembles and, and even taking garments apart and putting them back together in different ways uh, to create wardrobes for themselves that distinguish themselves. And yeah, they're certainly personal fashions, but it's also in a way revolutionary. Right? It's saying, I don't have to shop at H&M. Uh, I also don't have to look like everyone else by, you know, uh, get garnering a few pieces from J. Crew and, and what have you. Now, now, just to extend the question, could you imagine sumptuary laws where people were wearing 
sort of maljackets or something as a base, but which were varied by individuals for the creativity that the, the secondhand thing gives it. <laughs> a combination of a combination of minimalist with creative additions. Yeah. You want to make that compulsory? No sensory loss again. Okay.